The reading is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, starting at verse 15, 15 to 17, and then moving to 21 to 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go to where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. So hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. And as we come to the Lord's word, we pray together. 
Heavenly Father, may your word then be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 17, uh, of course, is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer, the final prayer that he prays for his uh, disciples, for his people. Jesus, of course, is uh, less than 24 hours from his death. And uh, Jesus is departing. His apostles have uh, come to realize that. And they are full of fear and doubt and uh, asking themselves the question, what it happens now? How can they go on without the Lord Jesus being physically with them any longer? And in John 17, we uh, overhear, if you like, Jesus' prayer for his apostles and then for those who will come after them. And uh, the section we're looking at, in fact, 9 through uh, 16, is it was uh, 9 through, uh, sorry, 6 through 19, uh, in fact, is where Jesus prays specifically for his apostles. I don't know if you noticed that, but actually this part of the prayer is specifically for his apostles before he turns to those who will come after them in verse 20, after, uh, verses 20 and later. But actually, I think there are clearly points of application uh, for all of God's people here. And the first is these verses, this prayer centers on and reminds us that in salvation it is God who takes the initiative. Divine initiative is a strong theme in these uh, verses. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as God's gift. Um, we tend to use the language in a derogatory way because it smacks of hubris and pride when people uh, think of themselves as God's gift. We might say somebody thinks of themselves as God's gift to women or God's gift to the team or even perhaps God's gift to the church. It's very striking as those words were read. I don't know if you noticed that as Jesus prays, he makes the point several times that Christians are God's gift to the Lord Jesus. We are God's gift to the Lord Jesus. Take verse 6, our opening verse. Jesus prays this, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Christians are the Father's love gift, love offering to his Son, the Lord Jesus. One writer put it like this, Christians often think of Jesus as God's gift to us. We rarely think of ourselves as God's gift to Jesus, and yet we are. But there's no room for pride here, of course. It is not because we are good uh, but that God is gracious. God chose us and called us to himself in an act of grace. And Jesus' prayer for his disciples flows from the fact that they are first and foremost God's. God has taken the initiative to call his people, to rescue his people out of the world. World is used a lot in this passage. World is used a lot in John's gospel, and it's important to recognize that when John uses the word world, he is not referring to the planet geographically. He's not referring to sort of all of humanity in that sense. Rather, he's referring to the planet spiritually. When John uses the language of world, he's referring to a humanity in rebellion against God. So when it says that he called us out of the world, it's saying he called us out of our rebellious state. In his love, God has taken the initiative to rescue his people, to give them new life, uh, 
and new hope. Salvation is God's loving initiative, and he presents his son with the gift of the church. Salvation is God's initiative. In fact, it's striking, isn't it, that our reading from Acts, did you notice, also has that theme of God's initiative running through it. As the apostles gather to determine who will replace Judas as the twelfth of the twelve foundational apostles, we read this in verse 24 of Acts 1. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. Before man chooses... God has chosen. It is God who takes the initiative. Of course, that initiative is never at the expense of our responsibility. Did you notice again in John how Jesus speaks of the apostles? He speaks of them as those who obeyed God's word when they heard it in verse 6. They accepted his words. They believed Jesus to be from the Father, verse 8. There is a responsibility when the call is heard to respond with faith and obedience. But nevertheless, there is a stress here on the divine initiative in salvation. And it seems to me that gives his people, that gives us this morning real grounds for assurance. Remember the context of John 17. Life is about to get very tough for the apostles. Jesus is about to leave them. They're about to face the hostility of the Roman Empire with the remit to take this message that humanity is naturally hostile towards out into the world. Life is about to get very tough. And of course, life can be very tough for us. We can feel overwhelmed. We can feel pressures from without, hostility, pressures from within, temptation and doubt. There'll be times, I guess, like the apostles when we can be unsure if we can complete this journey of faith It is this truth that God takes the initiative in our salvation that stabilizes and reassures us. I take it that is why Jesus prays it on this final night. God takes the initiative in our salvation. God finishes what he starts. If we belong to God, if we accept and obey his word, then nothing can separate us from his love. That God takes the ultimate responsibility in our salvation doesn't breed complacency, but it does give us the courage and the confidence to keep going, knowing that the Lord God holds us and is working our salvation in us as we work it out in faith and obedience. Divine initiative. The second theme that runs through these verses that strikes me is divine protection. Apostles are to go out with confidence, but not with complacency, for Jesus makes the point they will be surrounded by enemies. They may have been taken out of the world spiritually, but they've not been taken out of it physically. We're to be a people in the world, but not of the world. And so Jesus prays to his Father that he would protect, literally the word in Greek is keep, his people. And he prays it twice, you notice. First he says... his father would protect his people from the world. Jesus knows that while he is departing this world uh, that was so hostile to his message, his disciples are to remain, and not only to remain, but to stand up for the Lord Jesus and to speak out his unpopular message. And that will put them under pressure. 
And Jesus prays that his Father will protect them, will keep them in that pressure. Whenever a family comes under pressure, of course, there is a potential for fallout. There is the potential for splitting. It's very striking, verse 11, that he prays for God's protection that they might be united. I will remain in the world no longer, he prays, but they are stood in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. It's a theme Jesus will return to in verses 20 to 26, but he prioritizes unity in this, uh, in this high priestly prayer. And he prioritizes, he prioritizes unity because, of course, it is the unity of his apostles that will say so much about the gospel and the God who has called them and made them his own. It will show the world that they have been reconciled to God and thereby reconciled to one another. There is, says Jesus, something divine, something supernatural about unity, and it will, it will testify to the truth of the gospel that they preach that God redeems and he reconciles. And as they preach that, as the world looks on and sees the apostles under pressure but united, it will underpin, it will illustrate the gospel that they preach. There is this unity between the three persons of the Godhead, and as we are restored in the image of God, so we should be a people of restored unity. Jesus prays that his Father would keep them and keep them in such a way that they would be united. That is his prayer for all his people in all ages. That is his prayer for us. A good thing to pray, that we would be protected and that we would be united. He prays for protection from the world and finally he prays to Eunatus in verses 15 and 16 for protection from the devil. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. The New Testament is clear about the devil. He is... Uh, through the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, a beaten foe, but he is not yet a banished foe. The New Testament is clear that the devil is a reality, and he still actively opposes God and his work and his people. He longs to destroy God's work and hamper God's people. And it's possible to make two mistakes with the devil. Either we ignore him, which even Jesus does not do, or we give him more credit than he's due. The fact of the matter is that he has been defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection, yet he still holds temporarily some power and is at work in the world until Jesus returns and finally banishes him. His work is to attack God's people and to derail God's purposes. And Jesus prays that we would be protected against him. And I take it that is something that should be in our prayer life too, that we would be protected from the evil one. And again, as we close, these are words of great encouragement in times of trouble and difficulty, temptation and doubt. We are the Father's gift to his Son. And I take it the Father then will not allow that gift to be damaged. Jesus does not promise here safety from pressure and persecution, but he does promise safety in and through pressure and persecution. I was struck as I read these words, my mind went back to a, a very famous passage in the Old Testament from two kings. I don't know if you remember when Elisha, the great prophet Elisha and his servant, found themselves surrounded by enemies. 
a huge army, and the servant of Elisha is frightened, petrified. And Elisha tells him not to be frightened because, Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them, he says to his servant as his servant looks at this great army. And then Elisha prays, and he prays this, O Lord, open his eyes so that he might see. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes to the spiritual reality. And do you remember the servant of Elisha sees surrounding the opposing army this vast army of the Lord, horses and chariots of fire that surround them. And his fear is quelled. That's back in 2 Kings 6 if you want to look it up. God always finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. He protects his people. And we are not always aware of that protection, but it is there. Let us pray that God would give us those same eyes of faith that are aware, even in times of difficulty and trouble, temptation and doubt, that we are surrounded by the name, the character, the work of the Lord, and we are safe. Amen.